Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking this evening in Psalm 44, and you can find it on page 470 and 471 in the Pew Bible. This is God's Word. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us, and disgraced us, and have not gone out with your armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations." You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Great God and King, we pray just now, send forth your spirit that you would speak to the very depths of our hearts. For your servant is listening. We ask it in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. It was the year 2020. Perhaps you remember something about it. Many of you remembered what happened in the world, but only a few of you remembered that Pastor Smith and I did a devotional series called Strength to Strength. The reason I say few is because I saw how many views there were. So I recognize not many of you remembered that. That's okay. We're not taking it personally. The point of those 
videos. It was a devotional series. It was coming from Psalm 84, and we were having in mind the idea when the people of God are separated and there's tribulation and trials in life, how do we grow in grace and how do we have our hearts kindled for the gospel? How do we look forward to what is to come when right in front of us might not be what we hoped it would be? And that is often not just a year of 2020, is it? There are several occasions, I'm sure, in your life in which you can say, these moments or these circumstances, they don't seem or look or feel glorious. What do I do? How do I think? What does the gospel tell me? There's a little bit of a picture of that in Psalm 44. We've obviously been in this altar for quite some time, but I want to help you understand if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we looked at Psalm 42 and 43 over the course of two weeks, looking at both of them, week one and then again week two. This is very different in the sense of Psalm 42 and 43. This is not your personal psalm. This is not your personal prayer. This is, in fact, a prayer for all of the people of God. You might call it a national prayer. This is the church's prayer. Now, when we were reading, perhaps you began and it sounded wonderful. It sounded glorious, and it was. This is a psalm of lament. And when you begin, you don't necessarily see that. And yet, almost there's an immediate turn, and the psalmist, on behalf of the people, begin to look at what's going on around them, and it is a difficult time. Part of the difficulty in life is not just its circumstance, but it's what it exposes, doesn't it? We've talked about this before. We all have a theology, but our life tends to bring out our functional theology. When hard times comes, we begin to see our theology exposed. What do we really believe when trials are at hand? And therefore tonight, we want to look at what's our theology in times of trial. And I want to do it with three points. What does our theology remind us? And then what about when our theology doesn't answer? We're given answer. And then lastly, where does our theology lead us? If you'll look with me in the first eight verses and we ask the question, what does our theology remind us? There's two observations to make almost immediately. The first is you see the psalmist beginning by saying, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Isn't it a great picture of what the psalmist is saying? It's, it's reassuring. And why? Because I think what the psalmist is suggesting here is your Bible is rooted in history. As the psalmist is going to consider the past, as the people of God are going to consider what God has done, it's not a daydream. It's not an exaggerated, wishful thinking of what took place. No, it's exactly what happened. It's factual. It's this is what was recorded. God, you actually did these things. And there's something of great confidence that we can have. And then you ask the question, how do these people know about their history? Brings me to the second observation. 
Your Bible is recorded in history. It's rooted in history. But how do we know our history? Did you see how the psalmist began? Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us. We've heard with our ears and our fathers have told us. One generation is to tell another. It puts a premium on parenting. It puts a premium on what it means to talk to your children or your grandchildren about who is God and what is He like. It's the instruction that Moses gave Israel, wasn't it? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says what? Teach these things to your children. They are to know it. And in fact, if you keep reading, it's almost as though he's saying you're to teach your children and it's going to come up. They're going to have to begin to ask questions. If you're teaching your children the gospel, they're going to have to begin to say, well, what does that mean then? Why do you eat bread like that? Or why do you have a cup? We're to teach our children who is God and what is he like. It's our job to teach our children theology. Not the school, certainly not the public school, not your home school, not your Christian school, but your family. Not even your church, although they are to be a part of it. Parents, you're responsible for teaching your children the good news of the gospel. It's a challenging question, isn't it? Because if you had to ask yourself, do my children know who God is because of me? Or do they know in spite of me? There's also a grand reminder. I'm not being paid to say this, and I don't see her in here, so it's probably a good thing. It also means you never graduate from children's ministry. There's not a single individual in here who should not take part in some form or fashion in children's ministry, in nursery, in youth ministry. You're never too old. You're never too disabled. You're never not smart enough. We have a premium in this church that says we care about the smallest among us. And it's a grand, and might I add, biblical responsibility to teach children the gospel, to help them understand who is God and what is he like, that they might know something special of Jesus. I'm telling you that because I I want you to hear me say it. If we fail as parents to do that, if we fail as a church to do that, if we bind our tongues as it were, We ought not to be surprised than when our children are bound by sin. If they know not the truth, where are they to turn? So the psalmist begins with a grand picture of what God has been doing, and he does so by saying, our parents, our fathers, the generations before us, they tell us the greatness and the glory of God. I certainly hope we're a church like that. I want to be a dad like that. I hope you are as well. But that's not all that we get when we think about what our theology reminds us of. What is it specifically that the psalmist moves to? He says, salvation is from the Lord. 
That's his summary, isn't it? We are who we are and we are where we are because of God. God did it. What has taken place is not by man, not by might, but the sheer grace of God to his people. And every bit of their recounting here is to over and over and over again say, look at him. Look what he's done. Look at how much we have been blessed and delivered by God. It is our sovereign God who saves. There is no other Savior. God has saved a people, and he saves a person. He saves a people and a person, and that's what you're getting. He's demonstrating the the national salvation, as it were, of Israel. Here is God's work among all of his people. And then he's almost as though he's saying, this is also God's work in my life. It's not just the church, but I see God's work in me. He has done great things for me and in me and through me. And not a single bit of the victory does he take credit for. Every turn He points and says, it was all of God. And it should challenge us, shouldn't it? It's a national psalm. And I think it's led many to treat this inappropriately. We love to say that we live in God's country. This is not a psalm that says, God bless America. This has absolutely nothing to do with America. This is entirely about the church. God's universal people. Not geographical, but universal. Where are the people of God? Where are they? Wherever you are, you can pray such a song. But it is not meant to be Our country, the reason why we are where we are is because God did this for us and we're just a godly country. Or, on the other extreme, we're suffering so many cultural taboos and and sinful things because we we have forsaken God. We have always forsaken God. As soon as we have founded this country, we forsook God. There's never been a perfect man to walk this United States of America. We've always been a country failing to love God. And so we don't look at this and say, God bless America. Or if we'll get our act together, God might do something different. And I think the reason for that is because we're easily tempted to think, if we just had the right leader, albeit a mayor, a governor, a president, a cabinet, a congress, it doesn't matter. If we just had the right leader, we would be in a better place. And Psalm 44 says no. This is not about your country. This is about the church. It's not about anyone else but the people of God. And we're to recognize where we are is because of God and what he is up to. And I think that's why Spurgeon rightly interprets verse 3. Look with what the psalmist says here in verse 3. He says, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. This is what Spurgeon says. A negative is put both upon their weapons and themselves. 
as if to show us how ready men are to ascribe success to second causes. The divine hand actively fought for them. The divine arm powerfully sustained them with more than human energy, and the divine smile inspired them with dauntless courage. Salvation is of the Lord. It is the grace and mercy of God for all of his people and even you as an individual. Maybe you're getting that picture that happens in the book of Joshua. Sometimes it's known as the book of conquest. It, Moses has died and the people of God, are they're entering into the promised land. They're trying to rid themselves of those who are enemies in the promised land and they're gaining their inheritance. And there's this little refrain that happens at the end of the book in chapters 24, I think it's 22, 23, and 24. And it says this, all of the promises of God have been fulfilled. They receive miraculously this land against their plans and against their faithfulness. And the recounting of it is, it's because the promise of God has been fulfilled. He has done it. And we don't receive promises because we're good people. And we don't receive promise because we're attractive people or because we're qualified people. That's what Moses said, didn't he, in Deuteronomy 7. It's not because of any of these things. It's all because God loved you. And that's the truth that runs from Genesis to Revelation. It's why Paul says salvation is a gift. You cannot earn it. It was earned for you. And so our theology, what does it remind us? It's all of God. It's the distinctive of what it means to be reformed. It's this high view of the sovereignty and the doctrine of God that you begin with and it affects every other doctrine because we never stop looking to him for anything and for all things. God has worked in history. He's worked in church history. He's worked in your history. And so you can begin as this psalmist. I've heard with my ears from my fathers, this is who God is, and this is what he's like. I can praise him forever. What a king of glory. And as you're getting excited, verse 9 shows up. And what does he say? But you have rejected us. What, if that's what our theology reminds us of, what do we do when our theology isn't giving us an answer? If it's not telling us what we are to do or what we are to think or with what we think, it's not planning itself out the way that we would have expected. This psalmist has said, I see what you have done, God, but when I look with my eyes with what is in front of me, the present, it is not good. The place in which I find myself is not fun. It's not enjoyable. There are great problems in front of me. Many people try to argue about what's actually happening here. What's the context? Nobody knows. It's not clear. It's not certain where they actually are. But what is certain is that this people, Israel, they have suffered great defeat. They have suffered defeat. And that's why the psalmist says, but now... Typically, when you see that phrase, however, in the scriptures, you get excited. 
Because you're anticipating this is the great news of what God has done. He's, he's doing something to show forth his deliverance, his glory. And this people is saying, our expectation is not our experience. What we're expecting after recalling who he is is not at all what we're experiencing right now. We are, we are in trouble And what you saw in the first eight verses, when the psalmist says, you can see it in verse, um, you can see it in verse three, beginning, it's your right hand, your arm, the light of your face, you are my king. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down. Not in my bow do I trust, nor my sword can save me. You have saved us. You recognize the, the emphasis here. It's you, you, you. And then what happens? We move into verse 9, and what do we see? You, you, you. The same strength. The same intensity in which we remembered how God has delivered is now being directed as this is what's happening and it is of the Lord. It is God himself who has put them in this place. It's what is overwhelming, isn't it? Because there's nothing accidental. There is nothing that is happenstance here. They are saying it is is on purpose. God, you have done this. We have been rejected. We have been like sheep for slaughter. You have scattered us among the nations. Look at the language. You sold us, not even for a lot of money. We weren't even very valuable. You, Lord, did this. There's been a battle for sure. And many of you know the Old Testament well. This is not the first time Israel has ever lost a battle. This is not their first defeat. And so why so intense in this language? Because they get a picture of what hell is. Did you see what he says in verse 15? How uncomfortable that thought. All day long. My disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. You want to know what hell looks like? There's a picture of it right there. For all eternity, to have your sin before you, to see your shame and disgrace, and to have the wrath of God in front of you and on top of you, it's a hard truth. As one pastor said, it's our sovereign God who is sovereign over the sunshine and the shadows. And what the psalmist is saying here is a clear recognition. God has not dropped the ball. God has not lost control. God is not questioning, did I do what was right? Should I have rethought my plan here? No, the psalmist is quite clear. What makes it hard, what makes this a shadow and a true trial, it's because it's from the Lord. And that's what makes it so difficult to consider. That the great God who delivered is also the one who brought trial before this people. And it's that truth that leads many people astray, doesn't it? Some people will say things like this. Well, of course it wasn't God. 
God doesn't know the future. It's called open theism. God only knows what happens when people do something or when people say something. He knows all there is to know at a certain time, but he cannot know the future. And so as you say something, God becomes aware of it. He lacks knowledge. That's why this can't be of God. Or maybe someone would say he lacks power, a very humanistic worldview. Man is the center of all that is true, of all that is good. You are in charge of your own life. Now, you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, of course, that's not true. Those are easy to denounce. But isn't it equally as true? Sometimes the church and people in the church, when they're trying to comfort somebody who's facing difficult circumstances, that people have said, well, God wasn't a part of that. He didn't have anything to do with that. God wouldn't do that. What comfort is that? What comfort is it to know that what you are experiencing, however hard, however evil, is that there is a God who is unable to help you? There's a God who lacks the ability to know where you are and what's going on, and He can't do anything for you. How is that comfort? There is no comfort to know that God is unable or does not know. And so we don't need to make excuses for the Lord. He is at work and he does as he pleases, whether we understand or not. Salvation is of the Lord. And so are tribulations. Times might be difficult. Now what makes it even harder? Because these people respond with something that is very challenging. They have an assertion. What's their assertion? Verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackal jackals and covered us with the shadow of death, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. We're innocent. We have not done wrong. Now, of course, they're not talking about a moral perfectionism here. They're talking about a a covenantal fidelity. They are saying we As far as we can do, we have been faithful unto you. We have been faithful unto your law. We have been faithful unto your covenant. Why? Why is this happening? And that means we have to pause. And we have to say, the state of innocence does not remove persecution, abuse, or injustice. Just because you look at your life, and you say, I've done no wrong. It does not guarantee you no trial or tribulation. These people, they don't have a convicted conscience. They're not confessing any sin. They can't seem to point to something that they've done wrong. And yet they give an answer, don't they? one that makes it even all the more confusing and questioning. 
What's their answer? What do we do? Verse 22, yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. On account of you, only on account of you, we suffer these tribulations. Isn't that something Jesus said? The world has hated me. The world will hate you. On account of me. Because of me and your love and affection towards me, your following of me, they hate you. Perhaps there's something in there when he says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily. Not all of it will be a cross because you've done something wrong. There will be many times it is. But perhaps there's times where you say, I'm innocent, I've been faithful. And yet where you find yourself is in the midst of intense persecution and injustice. It doesn't answer all your questions. To know that something is going on in your life and the only answer you can give is it's on account of God. It perhaps springs up more questions of why this or why that. And these people have no answer. Theology reminds us of the past. Salvation is of the Lord, but what do we do when our theology doesn't answer? These people give you an answer by saying, where does our theology lead us then? If where we are and what is taking place, we cannot put a finger on it, we cannot get clear understanding, or if the only understanding that we have is this is on account of God, what are we to do? Where are we to go? Well, verse 22 is a grand reminder. This is not meant to be an Old Testament pastime that has lost its power for the present. When you read, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Perhaps you have heard that before, and it's not because any of you in your morning devotions turned to Psalm 44. But maybe you were looking for comfort, and where you turned was to Romans chapter 8. Let me read to you a portion of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. A very, very popular passage. When Paul is considering the future glory of God, what does he say beginning in uh, verse 31? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where does theology lead us? It leads us right back to the one in which we learned all things. It leads us right back to Jesus, right back to the one who delivered us many days ago. We go right back. These people are asking, well, where else would we go? Things are hard. I don't know what to do. Where would we go? We go right back to God. And don't you appreciate the language that they use with God? Flip back over to Psalm 44. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Did he fall into a divine slumber? Does he have sleep apnea? Does he not know what to do? Has he forgotten his people? And of course the answer is no. No. And these people are saying, we need more of you. And they go right back to the one they have been praying to, the one they have been trusting in. You see, Psalm 44 might be asking the question, well, what is it? And Paul is saying, it's who? It's God. You need to know. I need to know. Being a sheep of the great shepherd does not mean you will not be slaughtered. It does mean, however, you will not be separated. There's no moment in this life or in the next if you are a child of God in which you will ever, ever, ever be alone. You might feel many of loneliness, but nothing can separate you from the love of God. These people knew that. It's why they use that term that we have talked about over and over again. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Paul is saying the same thing. He is anchoring in Romans 8 what these people are trusting in here the Hesed of God, the steadfast love of the Lord. We don't have to have all the answers to all of our questions, but what we do have is the self-declaration of God. When we say that God can do all things, we have to put that in perspective. Can he do all things? Kind of. There are things that God is bound to. He cannot deny himself. He cannot take his hesed away. He cannot lose it. It will not increase. It will not decrease. It will not redirect. If you are his, you have hesed. And he cannot change. Because for him to change means he ceases to be God. And so no matter what your day has been like today, no matter what tomorrow will be or what yesterday was, if you are in Christ the hesed of God has been labored on you. It's why you were able to sing far more loudly this morning than we do in the evening. Because you know there is a God who cares eternally for you.
It allows you to face today and tomorrow. And you can say boldly, just like the psalmist says, you are my king. Just say the word, God, and it'll change. I can't fix it. I can't change it. I can't do anything with it. Say the word, Lord, and it'll be done. We trust you. Is that where you are tonight? When you look at your life, good day or bad day, can you say with the psalmist, I don't trust in my bow or my sword. It can't save me. God saves me. Don't you appreciate that story with John the Baptist? You remember it? He's been imprisoned. Herod got a hold of him. Do you remember what he does? He sends a notice to Jesus. He sends a disciple, a messenger. You remember what he asks? Jesus, why is this happening to me? I've only done good things for you. Why would such troubles come my way? He says nothing like that. Are you the one? Are you the one that I've been trusting in? Are you the one that we've been looking for? And do you remember that wonderful response of Jesus? The deaf will hear. The blind will see. And the dead will live again. That's what today has been about. That's what every day is about. That's what Psalm 44 is about. That your temporary tribulation has a connection with the eternal love of God. Things might not change in your life. And do you know what's good about that? Neither will the love of God. So as many times as your circumstances remain the same, so does the hesed of God. How do we understand theology in times of trouble? It's simple. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. Let me pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we thank you for such a divinely inspired hard truth that many might be the questions of our life and our circumstances never finding answers and yet we always have one. We have you. And in Christ, if that is true of our life, there is no thing, no one, no person, no moment, no activity, no idea, no challenge, no any other item that can separate or loosen the hesed of God upon his people. And so as we have celebrated this day, the great resurrection of our King, there might be people here tonight who say, I believe in that, but my life is so hard. There might be people in here tonight who wake up tomorrow to a great tribulation. And so we pray, anchor us 
and your truth that we are never orphans for we are blood-bought children of the Most High God and therefore our temporary circumstance connects us with an eternal love and we can say you are my King. So help us, O Lord, to turn our eyes upon Jesus and we pray in and through his name.